If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Dale Allison, thank you so, so much for being here. Uh, your work has been quite helpful to me personally. I, I first read your book, The Historical Jesus and the Theological Christ, like a decade ago before I knew Pete Enns personally. I emailed him because of his books. And I was like, who should I read on the historical Jesus? And he said, you and Luke Timothy Johnson's The Real Jesus. I bought them both. I read them both. I found them both very helpful. I never have spoken with you about that, but I'm I'm thanking you for that now. Well, thank you. Although that's very interesting because uh, Luke Timothy Johnson and I have a different approach to two things. It's interesting that you can uh, get something for both of us. <laughs> I guess I don't know the breadth of your guys' work, but on that question of the historical Jesus, where you both, broadly speaking, came down on my reading was something like, 
Jesus of Nazareth was roughly this kind of guy who roughly did and said these kinds of things, (laughs) but Uh we don't, but it would be overly confident to say we know to whom he said what, when, in what order. Uh And that's where the sort of literary, you know, interpolation of the, the gospel writers comes in. And there's obviously some differences there. So that's my guess has always been, that's why Pete liked both of those books is that in that sense, there was some agreement, I guess. Uh-huh. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. But this book you've written now uh, is called Encountering Mystery. And it's basically a continuation of like the William James varieties of religious experience sort of uh-huh. school of thought where it's it's taking people's religious, spiritual, supernatural, whatever experiences, taking those seriously, like in a scientific sort of empirical way in terms of describing them, categorizing them, looking for continuities and saying, look, whatever this stuff amounts to actually, whatever we mean by actually, here is the group of experiences that people have. And Uh we should take that seriously. Am I getting it basically right? How else would you gloss that? That's correct. So one way you could think of this is I'm a sort of naturalist, but it's a naturalist of human experience rather than of the, the the natural world of, let's say, biology. What I'm in effect doing is saying, look, if we look around, we see elm trees, lots of elm trees. And then we ask, what do elm trees have in common? And then we can talk about elm trees. And that's what I'm doing in this book. There's a chapter on, in effect, elm trees and a chapter on sycamore trees. And then there's a chapter on oak, oak trees and a different type of oak trees. And I'm doing this by looking at hordes of reports and then sorting them into piles. That is, I'm noticing family resemblances between certain experiences and then I have my piles, and there are a lot more piles than than I talk about in the book. Obviously, it's just a few things that I picked out of this mess. So the world is a buzzing confusion, and there are a million things out there, but there are elm trees, and there are sycamore trees, and then there are people who have the experience of running into what they think is an evil presence, and I regard that as an experience and as something subjectively real, I also think it's cross-temporally attested, it's cross-culturally attested, and therefore it gets my attention. So you talk in the book about some experiences that you've had that are one of the motivators for writing the book. And I I speak regularly on this show about the fact that I have spiritual experience. Um, Do you feel comfortable talking about one one or two of those experiences here? Sure. So the easiest one to talk about is the one I start the book off with, and I interpreted it, or rather people around me interpreted it at the time as a conversion experience in Christian terms. I think of it a bit differently now, but I was simply in my parents' backyard. I was a teenager. I was 16 years old. This was Wichita, Kansas. I could still see the night sky, could still see some stars back then. The lights hadn't completely extinguished the night sky. What I do remember is that out of nowhere, just out of the blue, totally unprepared for, everything changed. And the only way to put this into words, I know this makes no sense, 
but it's what the mystics always say. It's ineffable, right? So you have to put it into words. And mystics are always, they say, they say you can't talk about it, but they, they go on incessantly talking about what they can't talk about. So that's the same thing <laughs> with me. Same thing with me. And all I can say is it was as though the stars came down from heaven. Now, I know that makes no sense in terms of what we know stars to be, but it was as though the lights in the sky came down and they surrounded me and they announced the arrival of some sort of transcendent presence. And this presence then shows up. And the only word I have in my vocabulary for this is God. And it's affectionate, but it's also overwhelming. It's forbidding. It's this strange mixture of the attractive and the other. Hmm. But what it leaves me with, I think, above everything else is this is the real, maybe. And everything else is sort of less real than this. One of the effects, lifelong effects of this is to make me a bit of a Platonist, maybe even a bit otherworldly. Tell, tell us what you mean by Platonism there. I just mean that the, the real reality is what's ordinarily invisible. All right. So, you know, Plato has his forms, his ideas in the, the heavenly world or wherever it is. And then the material ob, ob, objects are uh, instantiations of those those forms. OK, so that means that the the, the truly real uh, color red or the truly real triangle or whatever exists in some sort of platonic heaven. So I'm not thinking in terms of forms. I'm just thinking in terms of, I don't know, degrees of the real. It's an experience. I'm not sure how to put it in the, into words, and I'm not a poet, but I was overwhelmed by the sense that this is real, this is real, and I've sort of been living uh, in a fantasy, illusory world. And this lasted only for a few seconds, but it was totally overwhelming, completely overwhelming. And uh, from one point of view, I think the rest of my life grows out of this experience. And that's actually one of the things that I try to do in the book is I, I try to say, look, whatever you make of these experiences, they are humanly important. I am who I am. My career is what it is because of this 10, 15 second event that happened to me when I was a teenager totally. that changed everything. So we need to at least take these seriously in terms of, of human biography. So you know, that's not a very satisfactory description, but I don't have one because it's some sort of <laughs> mystical and ineffable event. But it was real. I didn't conjure it. That is, I didn't experience this as a projection. I experienced it as, uh oh, something's arriving from somewhere else. And I mean something that is not me. Now, a cynic might say, of course, it was me in the last analysis, but it was not experienced that way at all. I think that the first thing to say about this stuff is it happens. And it happens, as you said earlier, cross-temporally, cross-culturally. You know, the, the mystics, right, they talk at great length about how they can't talk about what <laughs> they experienced. But even in that description, they tend to agree with each other across traditions so the entire perennialist tradition, this idea uh, associated with people like Aldous Huxley, that, well, there's kind of one sort of original 
spirituality or whatever, and all the world's religions are sort of interpolations of that uh-huh. of that more basic thing. I have my issues with the perennialist approach in that I can I think it can be a little bit snobbish and sort of perch like. However, I don't think you can deny the the fundamental building blocks that lead the perennialists to those conclusions, which is that there is agreement. There is a spiritual experience that humans experience, and that in particular, ascetics and mystics, monks, nuns, people like this, and some, not always, right? It's sometimes it's just people hanging out in uh, on, in the plains in their teenage years, yeah, like uh-huh. like you, have these experiences, and the language that they use to describe them is fairly consistent. It's consistent enough to warrant interest and and sort of a closer look. Yeah, I think so. Also, I would emphasize that I don't think all of this is simply cultural production. So one of the experiences that mystics commonly have is the experience of unity or the experience that all is one. Now, Christians haven't always known what to do with this, but I did have this experience once. I was in my 20s and I was looking out a window at a building across the street and I was then completely overwhelmed for several seconds by the knowledge, the sheer and certain knowledge that I was the building, the building was me, there was no difference, all was one and so on. And I wasn't a Hindu, right? But I had studied a little Hinduism and as soon as this experience was over, I thought, oh, I know what a Hindu would make of this. Yeah. You know, Atman is Brahmin. But I had it even though I wasn't prepared for it, even though I wasn't trained to expect it, even though when it was done, I said, uh-oh, I'm not a Hindu. I'm a Christian. What the heck do I do with that? But it was a real experience. And it, along with several other things, made me realize that people sometimes create theology on the basis of their experiences. They don't just sit around and make things up uh, on the basis of nothing. They're actually struggling with things that have happened to them or that they know have happened to other people. They're trying to make sense sense of things that, that go on. In that case, I just, I didn't make sense of it. I just said, ooh, that's really interesting. So everything you just said was true, but I was trying to get this out of the sort of mystical realm and say, you know what, there are elm trees everywhere, and there are mystics all over the place, and there are even lots of people who are mystics for 20 seconds in their lives, and they're not mystics otherwise, but they were mystics for just a little bit, and in many cases, it's helped construct who they are, It's as in my case. Right. It it sort of turned me into a religious fanatic. Like, this is so important. This is so fascinating. I got to figure out what this is. Right. And, uh, you know, I was in Wichita, Kansas. This was the 1970s. And the only people who wanted to talk about God were, uh, you know, evangelical Christians. So I left my parents' church and, and hung around with evangelicals for a little while. But that didn't satisfy me very long. And then I spent the rest of my life studying religion. reading books, talking to people and trying to to write through the questions that come up from this. So I was telling you beforehand, this book kind of did a number on me personally. And it took me a little while to kind of figure out what was going on. And I had some 
kind of helpful conversations with uh, friends of this podcast. We we sarcastically refer to ourselves as the Big Five. It's a personality <laughs> joke. Myron, Sari, Sarah, and Trip, and we were chatting about it, and and they helped me kind of figure out what was going on for me internally as I was kind of working through it. And so I'm going to try and explain that here because it's kind of my roadmap for this conversation. Basically, I'm trying to find a middle path between two extremes, I think. So on the one hand is an extreme that I think you rightly criticize, which is a strict reductive materialism. And not just what scientists would call a methodological naturalism or materialism, which I think is very warranted if you're doing empirical science, you know, mm-hmm. you, you need to only work with empirical realities to, to sort of make your arguments and your count your evidence. Great. That's what science does. But there is an ontological naturalism and a, and a reductive naturalism that people can hold to that says, look, all that exists is the, is the physical stuff. That's it. That's all of it. And there are no emergent properties that come out of that, like mind or anything like that. It's just the stuff and everything is completely reducible to basically quarks or whatever we mm-hmm. find out is smaller than quarks, whatever, uh-huh. if we get there. Then on the other hand, I think that there is a kind of epistemological chaos. So I have seen this with friends of mine and in, in many venues where we open the door to sort of bigger realities, uh, the types of things that science doesn't concern itself with. And Again, I, I think we have to do some of that. We have to find this middle, but we can go to where it's like, well, now we're just talking about the Nephilim, you know, and who might the Nephilim be or like which demon is currently, you know, trying to confuse you and what what do they want versus what this other demon might want. And then there's a demon around every corner and we're, we're DVRing episodes of Ancient Aliens on the History Channel. And it can really kind of feel like chaos, like we live in some bizarro Frank Peretti demonic hellscape where how do we know what to trust? The recently late Michael Heiser, who is known for his his biblical scholarship around sort of, you know, what did the ancient Israelites believe about supernatural beings and sort of the divine Mm -hmm. council and Yahweh is above or Elohim or whoever. One of them is like above all the other gods, right? I was emailing with Michael Heiser because I was considering having him on the show and 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 I expressed this problem I had to him or this concern that mm-hmm. I'd seen the way his work had been used by others, by, by friends of mine and stuff. And he said, he's like, well, I don't think we have a right to disagree with the Bible on the presence of these entities and stuff. So that's too far, I think, to me. Like, that's not warranted either. And I feel like the kind of stuff you're cataloging in this book, near-death experiences, you know, possibly angelic stuff, certainly these more mystical kind of unitive experiences, Mm -hmm. certainly people's prayer experiences, my own prayer experiences. These are reason for hope of another, like, hopefully there is something after this life. And I, I would count this stuff in the category of evidence, but if I go too far with it, it becomes chaos. So that was a little bit long-winded, but that's kind of my whole thing here today, Dale. And what I'm kind of hoping to, that's the sort of terrain that my my mind will be traversing as we talk. Mm-hmm. Okay. So <laughs> there's a lot to unfold yeah, there. But there's a lot. First of all, 
I've been trained as a modern critical biblical historian. So when you say Nephilim, for example, I just say that's old ancient Near Eastern mythology. It has nothing to do with real life at all. And then if I'm looking at demons in the New Testament, I'm aware of what's going on in the Greco-Roman world. I'm aware of exorcisms in Jewish tradition. Uh, I know about how evil is thought of in the Dead Sea Scrolls and so on. So I'm I'm thinking about all this stuff critically. So I'm not going to say, okay, that's in the Bible and that just settles it as it is. That's never going to happen. To be clear, before we move on, I I didn't think that you would make that move that Michael Heiser made. I'm just using it as an example of when my friends get interested in this stuff, that's where they often end up. Yeah. And that seems to me to be unhelpful. So uh, all I can say is that I, I hope the book comes across as written by somebody who's critical and has uh, skeptical thoughts and is uncertain of things. So the chapter on angels, if you read it very carefully, it's a fairly skeptical treatment. So I'm yeah. looking at at all these reports and I'm asking, why do people narrate them in a certain way, Right what cultural factors have influenced the way these narratives are being uh, told. And then let's look at some of these and see if they don't have mundane explanations. And I give some mundane explanations for some events and others I say, well, I wasn't there, so I don't know. But that's not accepting the testimony as it stands. And actually, at the end of that chapter, I say, well, here are a couple of stories that if they happened as narrated, but I can't tell you whether they were, then they seem to me to indicate something more than a reductionistic view of, of reality. But I am critical about these things. Again, when I look at near-death experiences, I am aware, I have read, I have studied skeptical philosophers and medical people who just think this is all hallucination and so on and so on. And when I push back against that, I do so by saying, well, I think some of these experiences suggest or they hint or they're consistent with, but this is not a book of apologetics, actually. So to go back to my my illustration earlier, first of all, there are lots of elm trees and there are way more than people think. All yeah. right. That's really I the thought first- this was a really strong aspect of the book right here. Can you say a little bit more about the number of elm trees and and the the, the data that supports that like more people have these experiences than, than we tend to think? Okay, sure. Uh, half a chapter dedicated to this encounter with an evil force or an evil presence. All right. And First of all, just to be anecdotal and purely personal, I've had this twice. My wife has had this once, and all three of my children have similar experiences. So that that gets my attention personally. But we mm-hmm. do know from the surveys now that at least 20% of North Americans during the course of their lifetime does have an experience in the middle of which they think, oh, I am here encountering or face-to-face with or confronting an invisible evil presence. And it's truly overwhelmingly evil. It's terrifying. Everything you want to say about the devil, it's kind of put into this experience and they're terrified, right? So that is one-fifth 
of the population. That's 20%. And one of the things that bothers me so much is that the people who have this experience, the vast majority of them don't know that they belong to a 20%. Yeah. I just got an email last night from or last week from somebody saying, yeah, I've had this experience. I didn't know what it was. Now I can plug myself in. Okay, that does lead also to the the second point, which is that some people are schizophrenic. Some people have serious mental debility and problems. Some people do have purely endogenous hallucinations and visions. But but let me also say, as a doctoral psychological student, that's not twenty percent of North America. Oh, that has that has visions. Yeah, I mean, like like we, you can't explain that number via understandable forms of extreme psychopathology. The numbers do not equal twenty. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, from what I have read, most people who have visions just have a vision or two, it's occasional, and they are otherwise healthy. Most people who hear a voice once in a while aren't schizophrenic. They're just normal people. I hear my mother speak to me about once a year. It's very short. I don't know what it means. It it doesn't mean a lot to me, but I'm perfectly healthy, right? I've also had visions. I'm perfectly healthy. I really regret that we have within and without the churches a sort of giant censorship machine that's my that's my vision of it and it's not just reductionistic science part of this i think goes back ultimately to the reformation where the reformers in order to counter roman catholicism they have to get rid of every single roman catholic miracle yep. vision apparition they have to get rid of all of it And what quickly happens is if you've had one of these experiences, then it was a demon or there's something wrong with you. And that that feeds in actually to modern uh, secular medicine and psychology, I think. And then we get the Enlightenment. And then we also get the anti-Pentecostalism, the anti-Methodism of the mainline churches and so on. So there's a really long and robust tradition of wanting to keep everything in the closet or out of sight. And if you grow up, as I did, you sort of just intuit this. You know that when something happens to you, you don't tell anybody about it, right? So I had this with my daughter once. She she had one of these bizarre encounters with I don't know what it was, but she called them shadow beings, and she was terrified. And she told me later that she had 10 years of post-traumatic stress syndrome after this weird event. But she told me the morning that it happened, she came to me because she knew I was open-minded and wasn't going to censor her. And when she was done telling me the story, she said, Daddy, you can't tell anyone because they'll think I'm crazy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, she was not crazy. Right. She was not crazy. And one of the themes in the book is how often people self-censor themselves. And that's why we don't know how many elm trees there are out there, because people are keeping secrets. Again, I lecture on this topic and I can't tell you how many times after a lecture, after I'm done, somebody comes up and they wait till everyone's gone. And then they say, this happened to me. And then it's followed by, I never told anyone before, or I only told my wife, or something like that. It's again and again and again. 
So I don't know how to put numbers on these things, but I know that people's experiences are stranger and more weirder and mystical and terrible than than we usually think. Yeah, and I think that that is so valuable to point that out and to begin to catalog it and to normalize it because your daughter didn't need to have 10 years of PTSD symptoms. You know, if she had felt more comfortable and I'm not saying this is her fault, I'm saying if (laughs) culturally, if culturally it had been more acceptable for her to go to a therapist to talk about that, that Uh could have been resolved nine Uh years earlier, you know, or whatever. (laughs) And nine, Uh nine fewer years of suffering so, so I'm I'm 100% with you, and it, it is a, it's a, some sort of an indictment of our culture that people don't feel they can talk about these things, and I I just I'm I'm all for the normalization and the recognition of these human experiences. Full stop. I mean, I'm just yeah, 100% uh-huh. with you on all that. But then I will add where I think you want to go that. Once you recognize this, the work is not over. The the work's actually begun because you always have to separate the sense from the nonsense. And look, the way that I try to do that in this book is I say, all right, if I have a bunch of otherwise healthy-minded people reporting the same thing, then I'm going to look into it. That's it. If I have that, if I have something that's cross-culturally uh, attested again and again and again. I'm going to look into it. And some things clearly happen a lot. And nonetheless, the culture pays no attention, right? So, you know, we have this expression, um, you know, your life flashes in front of your eyes. Okay. Now, if you actually do serious reading on this, If you read literature on people who fall off mountains and survive, if you talk to near-death experiencers, right? If you talk to people who've been in automobile accidents and so on, you will find them saying that their life flashed before their eyes. They saw, sometimes they'll say, I saw every scene. I saw everything that happened. I don't know how this could have occurred. It only lasted a second or two. But then if you do the historical research, You can find this in medieval Jewish sources. Mm -hmm. You can find this in Pythagoras. You can find this in Augustine. This is a real thing, right? It's a real thing. And it doesn't get much attention. And when people have it, they don't know that it's not that uncommon. And my point is that the world is full of these offbeat or underexamined, maybe that would be a better term, underexamined experiences. And Given my my own social location, <laughs> I teach in a Presbyterian seminary. Our tradition is ignore all this, yeah. pretend and it'll go away. Or maybe there's something wrong with so-and-so, right? Or aren't those Pentecostals just crazy? I mean, that's, that is my tradition and I hate it. And that's, that's why I wrote this book in part. I hate being part of that tradition. Yeah. I, and and that comes through <laughs> in the book. <laughs> and no, in, in a good way. So before I push back on one particular, I only really have one aspect of the book that I, one specific thing I want to kind of argue with you about. Yeah. Um, before we do that, I, I think it's worth even setting this in a context of like, where does hope come from for a Christian? 
So that is one of the things I, I find valuable about taking this stuff seriously is that, you know, the, the, the various types of experiences, I think you would probably agree present greater or lesser sort of evidentiary strength for something like the view that there is an afterlife, that there's uh-huh. existence beyond this, or, or that there's something more real than this, right? You're talking about, I put this in the category of, of hope. Like this stuff is broadly speaking in the category that there is hope that when the lights go out for me in, in my current brain, that that's not the end. Mm-hmm. It's not apologetics. We can't prove that, of course. But I think it go. I think it does go in the category, and I think that one way we might square that with a contemporary understanding of the physical world is that our view of physics now is that this shit is fucking weird, man. That's the best way I have to put it. We got dark energy, dark matter. We've got, you know, the whole thing was the entire cosmos, like Ilya Dalio will say, the entire cosmos is essentially conscious at the beginning, by which she means in communication with itself, mm-hmm. sort of a thing, mm-hmm. like at the very beginning of the Big Bang. I mean, there's just, it is in one sense a unity. We know if we go back far enough in time, it's a unity. We're all connected. Uh-huh. I'm always trying to be careful not to sort of oversell that vision. And you don't want to do God of the gaps with black energy or, or mm-hmm. dark energy or dark matter and say, well, that just solves all our problems or, or quantum mechanics. But, you know, it is weird. It's we don't understand it very well for how well we maybe might in the future, for instance. And that is sometimes glossed over by the reductive materialists who I think for maybe psychological reasons need to feel and sound and speak with authority as if we've got this thing locked up. Yeah. So I I agree with you that the world, according to modern cutting edge science, is way weirder than anyone in the 19th century would have expected. And if they had been able to look 100 years into the future, they would have been terrified by how off they were, how how strange this thing is. Yeah. I remember talking to a physicist and asking, asking him once, what are electrons? You know, he said, nobody has a clue what an electron is. He says, we can do things and then we can cause uh, little sketches or drawings to appear, you know, uh, in our bubble chamber, and then we can write equations about them. But what they represent, what the things in themselves are, he says, nobody has any idea. And he said, I don't even know how to imagine what what the heck is behind there, right? So in the chapter on near-death experiences, I don't try to prove that near-death experience experiences established is life after death. But I do say, I think at one point, there are probably 10 of them. I give them right one after another. I say, here are testimonies from doctors, and here are testimonies from nurses and uh, emergency personnel on the scene who talk to somebody who woke up and then they report events that they could not possibly have perceived, right? And after giving about 10 of these, I just say, at what point do you infer that actually something really weird and remarkable is going on here and that there's some sort of perception we don't understand? I go ahead and say, I think we're already there. I think we have enough reports. There's actually a whole book. It's just a collection of from doctors and nurses reporting patients so-and-so couldn't have seen this but then reported it and and so on. So that doesn't prove life after death, but 
it suggests it. And occasionally there are these collective visions, weird collective visions of of uh, either dead people or what people call angels, whatever they are. And, you know, a hallucination in the usual derogatory sense is something that you project. So what do you do when multiple people are seeing the same thing at the same time? It raises questions, right? And maybe if you get enough of those, they're suggestive and they push in a certain direction. So that's all I'm doing in this book. You're right. It's not apologetics. It's just let's take these seriously. And some of them do raise interesting questions that at least for me uh, add to my hope, right? And that are consistent with broadly with my theological tradition. So my theological tradition makes the ridiculous, audacious claim that God is love. And how does this fit with the world that I see out my window? I do find it very comforting that people from all around the world report these odd experiences of being surrounded by some warm, affectionate, loving, transcendent something, right? And they'll give it different names. But I am comforted by this. I'm also comforted by the fact that people also have these experiences of evil. And I don't recall any any account of running into evil that said, oh, that's reality with a large R. But a lot of these people who run into this loving, warm, embracing thing will say, oh, that's actually what lies underneath all of this mess. Mm-hmm. So that comforts me. That's actually an empirical observation, which at some point popped into my head. I said, that's really neat. It sort of fits my Christian outlook. Again, uh, near-death experiences, if they suggest the possibility, uh, I think they do suggest the possibility of something more than this world, then they're consistent with, with my hope, right? So that they can they can add to it. There are all kinds of reasons to join the Patreon campaign. Let me give you a few of them. Number one, if you think that this podcast is valuable and you like the fact that it is a part-time job for me, and you'd like me to be able to put more time toward that part-time job, especially as my doctoral studies are wrapping up here, then you can support it. Five bucks a month, not a huge deal, helps me a lot. Uh, There's also participation. There's going to be more and more patron participation in the coming months as I roll some new stuff out. That might be questions to ask. It might be quarterly calls or live hangs, something like that. I haven't worked out all the details yet, but that kind of thing is coming. There is the online community, the Facebook community, which is for patrons only. And I would also like to get a Discord community, some other alternative going for people who want to be off Facebook for obvious reasons or just aren't on Facebook. And then finally, there is the additional episodes, which maybe I should have led with because uh, these are often fantastic. And the one that just came out is a conversation I had with an author, Stacy Frenis, and her book, Love Makes Room. It's a story of her coming to terms with her, her daughter who came out as gay. And it is a really good conversation. We talk about the book, but of course we get into all sorts of uh, related issues and her story. I asked her for a pitch for her book, and here is what she said. 
If you're struggling to better understand an LGBTQ loved one in your life, start with Love Makes Room. It's the story of how I come to terms with my daughter coming out as gay. It's both a handbook to help you through the process and it's a beautiful opening to important conversations. It will give you language for your own journey with the people you love. Isn't that beautiful? Would couldn't we all use more language for our journey with the people that we love? So you can hear that episode and all previous patron exclusive episodes. There are there's got to be 100 or more now. A couple hundred. And you know, we've got stuff with Tony and Josh most months called Generation Gap Culture Hour. Those episodes are really fun. We tend to focus more on current events, things like that. So there's more coming. It's a good time to join uh, patreon.com slash Dan Koch. That link is in the show notes. Anyway, let's get back to the episode. So let's, here's my one, my one specific quibble. Let's talk about the old hag. Uh-huh. Okay, so you mention uh, this this you know local myth of the old hag. It's a northeastern United States story. You wake up in the middle of the night, and there's a dark presence in the corner of the room. Mm-hmm. You can't move. You know that it means you ill, and and you say this has been attested in other cultures, you know, around mm-hmm. the world. People who it, it can't simply be like a culturally passed on thing, but of course it has different names. Yeah. But like, I got to tell you, Dale, I was like, oh, you mean sleep paralysis? Like, <laughs> like oh, sleep yeah. paralysis is that's basically the definition of sleep paralysis. And we know that people get that. And so that was one for me that I was like, I'm not sure that we need to do anything with this old hag thing. Like that one feels fairly tidy. OK, so I've talked to David Hufford, who's generally credited with, you know, calling attention to the old hag and and introducing people to the subject of of sleep paralysis. And there are a couple of things here. First of all, as I understand it, we understand the physiology of this fairly well. In other words, when you're dreaming, your body produces chemicals so that you don't act out the dream. Yeah, it keeps your your muscles from moving, basically. And so what's happening, apparently, is you're waking up, and then you are paralyzed, mm-hmm. right? You can and literally, yeah, you are. Yeah. yeah, you literally paralyzed for a few seconds. But then also people will say this was not the only thing going on and that it was accompanied by an evil presence. Now, I'm not a fundamentalist. I'm not even an evangelical. And I don't, yeah. I don't buy into traditional myths about the devil, all right? But I also know that these experiences happen outside of sleep paralysis, okay, this running into these evil forces. They're not confined to sleep paralysis. There are also, and there's one in my book, there's an occasional episode in which more than one person is sleeping in the same room, and the person who who experiences sleep paralysis and is terrified will also say, I saw a shadow monster or a shadow being or the Grim Reaper, or, you know, something like that. And weirdly enough, it's always, almost always at the feet on the left side. But there are occasional uh, reports of two people being in a room and both seeing the the shadow thing. So I'm open-minded about this. You're right. 100%. 100%. But like that, right there, that detail, 
on the, at the feet on the left side. Like if we have if we have two possible explanations for that, one is demons prefer to be on their right stage right. Right. Option number two is I'm not kidding. I'm not, but, I'm not calling attention no, to demons. I know, I know. I'm just saying this is this is the chaos that I worry about. Option number two is there's something about human psychology, maybe left brain, right brain, something that we don't understand yet that would put this thing on the left side. Like that's a yeah. way tidier explanation for me than, oh, they, they prefer that corner of a room depending on where the bed is or something like that. Okay, so, so my main point with sleep paralysis, this was in chapter two, my main point with sleep paralysis is that it is very common and it terrifies people and they don't know how common it is, right? Yeah. And in our culture, you are correct. Many people will say, oh, Satan or the devil or a demon. That's their way to explain it. That's like the old hag. And for me, that's mythology, okay? But I'm still open-minded and interested in the ontological question of evil because this is not confined this experience of running into evil forces is not confined to sleep paralysis but that's the place where it shows up and if you want to have a reductionistic explanation of sleep paralysis i'm not going to fight you i'm going to i want to follow the science i don't want to be stupid about this okay so no you, maybe I should go back and see and, and read that. But I thought that I thought that was my main point in chapter two, where, which is where I'm discussing uh, that. And then in chapter three, uh, where I talk about evil experiences, I think, yeah, I'm going beyond sleep paralysis at that point when I talk about whether we should in the, entertain the possibility of anything more out there than just, you know, God and us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and I am open I, I am candidly open minded about that. But I also don't have a traditional Christian view. My view is that whatever the invisible world is, I have no reason to think it's simplistic or straightforward. And the idea that it's God, demons, and angels makes little sense to me. I, I would guess there are as many weird, mischievous, uncategorizable things out there as there are lovely angels who meet us well and maybe there are some bad things that meet us ill and it's quite possible that i misread you in that chapter because as i said it was it was kind of doing a number on me emotionally as i was processing it but what i remember thinking with that chapter was that in an instance maybe this is the broader point to make that might apply beyond just the old hag is that when we have a pretty convincing category like sleep paralysis, uh-huh. something that is verified and that we know is cross-cultural. And then when we have a cross-cultural quote unquote supernatural experience or extreme experience or whatever people have, like that's the time where for me, the Occam's razor would lead me to the scientific explanation as like the simplest explanation. Uh-huh. Because it's it's far simpler than that. There are various old hags in various geographical <laughs> locales that act similar. You know, like that just gets to be a really weird explanation. And and my memory uh, is that I I didn't feel you kind of going in that direction as hard as I would have gone in that direction. But I also could have been misreading you, and I want to be very clear about that. Okay. Well, when I actually discussed the evil experiences outside of sleep paralysis. 
I'm, I'm not dealing with sleep paralysis. That's right. all. That's just, that's yeah. just put aside. Uh, maybe I've been influenced here. I, I have had conversations on this topic with David Hufford, who wrote The Terror That Comes in the Night, which appeared in the early 80s, which was the book that put sleep paralysis uh, on the map. He's the one who explained to me about the um, the chemicals and paralysis and all of this. But he said he still didn't understand the the sense of an evil presence at the foot of the bed. So mm-hmm. maybe I've been influenced too much by him. Well, I mean, and I think it's good to say we don't understand it. Like, Uh that's good. That's honest. Ultimately, whether or not you want to say there are these additional entities, it's going to really come into contact with what you think is going on in the universe. So I would just say that, like, you you mentioned, you know, 19th century theology and and I, I consider myself, I, I've sort of awakened to the fact that I am like an old school Schleiermacher, Tillich, like, <laughs> okay. you know, uncomfortable with the, uncomfortable with the woo-woo stuff type yeah. liberal Protestant. Like, that is my intuition anyway. That is kind mm-hmm. of where I go with things. And I think that needs to be updated, right? So the the things that, 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 that Schleiermacher would have had access to, you know, I have access to, to a lot more science, for instance, than uh-huh. he had access to. But I do think I am personally of the persuasion that we really do have to take that stuff seriously. And like, for instance, you know, I talked with Ken Miller on the show a while back, the, the, the biologist, uh-huh. and he's like, brains are essentially chemical machines. If I put the right chemical in the right spot of your in your brain, mm-hmm. you will feel something different. If I wiggle this thing, your arm will will move. Uh-huh. You know, like our brains are physical and the seed of our consciousness maybe our brains are these antennas for something like capital C consciousness that we participate in. I'm open to a view like that. But in terms of like what those 19th century, you know, theologians were, were, was coming, like they were kind of onto something like, and it's only gotten stronger. I would say a certain type of case like that, not the exact same case again, because they were reductive about some things with Newtonian Mm -hmm. physics and all that. Any, any responses there before I continue? Well, first of all, you're right. Brains are physical, but given that I don't know what matter is, I'm not sure what we're doing ultimately. You, you see, you, you function on a particular level when you're talking about brains as chemicals. But then if you're asking the metaphysical or ontological question, what are the chemicals? And then you finally get down to a subatomic state. I'm not sure what's going on, and I'm not sure how that relates to what you just said. But it seems to me something to be pursued because our materialism is no longer material. All right. Well, it's, I, yeah. I mean, so, so the, the best kind of physicalism is a non-reductive physicalism that does two things. Number one, it says, we don't know what all the physical stuff is, you know, like what, let's not pretend we have an exhaustive catalog. Like for instance, we know dark matter and dark energy exist, but we don't know hardly anything about them. And so let's, let's not go out over our skis I'm saying if you're going to be materialist, naturalist, physicalist, I think that non-reductive is the way to go. The other thing it does is it says that from whatever this stuff is, we get larger emergent properties like mind, right? So uh-huh. uh, when you get – if you get the right kind of uh, brain type 
material together, you will get consciousness. You will get an ability to sort of exert downward pressure, so to speak, mm-hmm. on smaller parts. That's why my mind can tell my arm to move and, my, and I'll move my arm. It's not that all the atoms in my fingers had to mutually agree upon moving. I am exerting downward causal pressure from an emergent property of mind. Yeah, we don't want to get into the philosophical problems of emergent properties. Yeah, that's a respectable philosophical position. But I'm probably not in that camp. And that's because I find it easier not to have a theory. So Mm. you just gave a sort of theory. Okay, I don't understand everything. I live in complete fog and confusion. All right. (laughs) And so if you Uh, want to say, look at the brain and we can do this, we can stick neuro, you know, we can stick electrodes in it and make you think this or make you feel that or recall that memory. Yeah, that's all true. On the other hand, I really do believe, maybe I'm self-deceived. I really think that on two occasions, I, I vividly saw future events. All right. I saw future events. Now, from what I can tell, there's no place for that in modern materialism. Right. It just doesn't exist. Some of these reports from people who are under anesthesia and have no way of perceiving what's going on down the hall. I think we have enough of those now to think some of those are real. Now, that's perception without your brain. That makes no sense according to modern neuroscience. So that doesn't tell me modern neuroscience is wrong about what it affirms. It tells me that it's not everything. It's not encompassing all of reality. Also, let me just give you another example. You might think I'm crazy, but if you look at the history of exorcism, right? It's really easy to psychologize this and the anthropologists explain everything and there's role playing. You could go on and on and on and on. And for most people now, they just say, okay, we understand what this is. We understand what demon possession is. Okay, maybe so. But if you actually read enough accounts, you'll find a couple of motifs, at least a couple of motifs that don't make any sense that keep appearing in these stories. So. One of them is the bizarre uh, report again and again and again that people who are possessed when they're being exercised levitate. Okay, now, maybe that happens. Maybe it doesn't. But there's an abundance of testimony to it. And I would say if people levitate, that doesn't fit. I, I don't know what it means. I don't know how to explain it. But that doesn't fit the current reductionism, right? Or again, another thing you frequently find is that so-called demons will utter sentences which re- which show that they know something uh, about, you know, an exorcist that they can't possibly have known, this sort of thing. Okay, my point is that we, we look at the phenomenon and we're able to reduce it, but we're not able to reduce it entirely. And so the points at which we can't reduce it, we say, well, we just don't believe those parts of it. Right. And I'm I prefer to say, I don't know what's going on here. I am not sure that we've explained away everything. I prefer that sort of modesty, epistemic humility, right? Than to say, I've got it all figured out. And again, one thing that plays into this for me again and again and again is that I think I'm a mammal. 
I've never met anybody else who knows that he or she is a mammal, but you are a mammal and everyone is a mammal. And you look at all other mammals and you see that they are severely limited in their ability to think and to figure out the world. And we have to be the same thing. We have to be the same thing. And that makes me very cautious about thinking, well, I have a paradigm and I'm just going to put it on top of everything. And if anything doesn't fit, well, then it just it's, it's false reporting. I don't like that. I prefer to keep uh, an open mind, uh, especially because I have some of these experiences myself. So does that does that sound irrational to you? No, I, I think that what I'd like to separate out is sort of our theory of everything or our, our, our sort of what we would believe might exist in the world, our personal ontology, whatever you want to call it, right? And I think that epistemological humility in that arena is warranted. I think it is perfectly warranted to say, man, this world is bigger and weirder than probably any of us think. And I'm going to, like, I love identifying questions that I will die not knowing the answer to. And then, Mm -hmm. and then just accepting that (laughs) while I'm alive, I think it's best to accept that because I'm not going to get the answer and I could spin my wheels forever or I could kid myself that I know the answer, but I don't know the answer. Mm -hmm. So this, that's true. But the rubber hits the road when people have problems that they then have to choose one of potentially multiple avenues of solving those problems. So if you get into something like that and you were to say, look at these accounts uh, from exorcism, Dan, how many people with, you know, psychiatric problems would you prefer to send to a psychiatrist or a therapist? And what, which ones would you prefer to send to an exorcist? Uh. And I would say I would send zero of them to an exorcist unless there was evidence that they had a culturally bound belief in exorcism, essentially that they had a strong placebo effect that was uh-huh. likely to help them. Then I would send them perhaps to an exorcist, you know, like, again, this is a complex situation. Or if we're saying, hey, this person has some cancerous cells, I've heard reports that demons, you know, <laughs> deal in skin cancer. Like, I'm just saying, like, you you and I are laughing, but Dale, go on fucking Facebook and you're going to find this stuff. It's out there. You know what I mean? I understand. Well, so you're more connected to the world than I am. <laughs> my, my, with, with regard to exorcism, though, I, I would just do what the, the Catholic Church suggests. That is, they don't accept an exorcism unless it's been th- unless the person has been through every single conventional test and treatment and so on. It's just a last resort. And I'm quite fine with approaching maybe everything that way. I am that I am actually too, even from a psychological standpoint, I think that that's reasonable. And there, and Uh when you learn cultural competency, for instance, when you're working with immigrant clients from other cultures and stuff like that, like it is often indicated to bring a priest, a pastor, a shaman, a whatever uh-huh. into a session because it increases outcomes for people. But see, that what that tells me is that, wow, our brains are fucking powerful. Uh, the, the things that we expect to experience, the, the things that we are 
socialized is not quite the right word because it doesn't necess- it's not necessarily socialization like the way we socialize manners but simply what i mean is the things we expect to experience are the things we grow up experiencing right so you have all these culture bound syndromes that only exist in certain cultures and can be categorized and very well defined and follow a regular course of treatment and you go over to Europe and no one's got it. It's only people in Southeast Asia that get it, uh-huh. right? There's like yeah. laughing sickness and, and these things. So as I'm trying to understand the world, I go, wow, our our brains, our minds, and our cultures are so powerful at shaping expectations. And so I don't know, like that at least has to play some part in these various reports. But so, but so there's a narrative here of the, the increase in modern knowledge. And so people used to look at epileptics and they would say, oh, that's a demon, right? Right. So we've learned better and we've learned lots and lots of things. So what happens to some people is they say, well, we've explained this and we've explained that. We've explained all these things. So we're eventually going to explain everything. Okay. And I think part of the problem with religion is that it has historically tried to explain way too many things. I like that point. It's invoked God all over the place. It's invoked demons all over the place. And we got ourselves in trouble because we invoked God for everything. And now we no longer need God for that. We don't need God for that. We don't need God for that. We don't need God for this. We don't need Satan for that. But I'm still here saying whatever the theological tradition says about this or that, I think there are things that do resist reductionism or materialism in any form that I know. So that's where I am, and I happily live there. And that's congenial because I'm a Christian, right? I don't want to be a reductionistic materialist. So that's my, you know, part of my psychological drive. Also, looking back on the experience that I opened the show with, I really don't like the thought that my 16-year-old experience was a complete illusion, right? By the way, you said I could look something up. I think, here we go, okay, whatever the causes, so I'm talking about what happened to me when I'm 16, be it imagination, my cerebral circuit board, extra mundane realities, okay, my imagination, the cerebral circuit board, extra mundane realities, or as I think, an even mixture of all three, right? Yeah. I find it very hard to sort to sort all this out. I do, I do want to be a bit self-defensive here because we've gone down one path, and it's a really important path, and I care about it a lot. But the first two points of the book are simply to say, look how common these things are. Totally. And don't pathologize them unless there's some other reason, you know, to suspect pathology here yeah. on the part of the person who's reporting them. Those are my main two things. And and it comes in part, that desire comes in part because I I teach at a seminary and I used to teach at a seminary. And I find that future pastors, many of them don't know anything about this material, just zero. And it's not just that they don't know anything, they are allergic to it. They're allergic to it, and it makes them feel uneasy, and they have no idea. So that if somebody comes to them and reports a particular experience, they don't know anything about sleep paralysis, and they are of no help. 
-hmm. They are of no help. And uh, they can be of no help if somebody has a, a life-changing near-death experience. I know pastors who just just dismiss it and say, you know, there's just chemicals. There's nothing else going on. Goodbye. Let, let's get on to something important. I don't like that. I know too many future pastors and too many pastors who are allergic to that. And so that's what's driving the book. Beyond that, I'm not a Talikian. I'm not a Talikian. I actually think that there are spiritual realities uh, that we sometimes run into them in odd ways. Okay? But that's not the main point of the book. That, that'll be the point of some other book if I get around to it, right? And then we can have a real debate then. Well, I think it's – first of all, I've, I've maybe not succeeded <laughs> in, in threading a needle between – expressing my gratitude and agreement while providing some pushback. And I, I've perhaps come across as more critical than I mean, meant to. So yeah. if so, I apologize. Well, maybe I've been too defensive because I'm trying to thread a needle here too. We're, you know, we're both doing that. I think that's kind of the whole point is that this is a very difficult needle to thread. It's a, it's just such a difficult balance to find that I think really epistemic humility is that is the term for it. And it's just where do you like where do you put the the sort of borders or buffers and, uh -huh. and how much explanatory power do you give various things? Yes, and so I, I I do wish to second that, and then to say I don't have the answers to these questions. I think I have some handle on some human religious experiences, and that's it, right? Yeah, the world isn't, in my view, tame, and our categories don't always catch everything, and there's much that I don't understand, right? And I also want to keep up with modern knowledge, but who can keep up with that? I can't even keep up with my own field of good grief. I was going to say biblical studies, but that's ridiculous. I can't keep up with the historical Jesus. Heck, yeah. I can't even come up, keep up with the subject of women and the historical Jesus. I mean, everything has blown up. I was also thinking as a small kind of side stream, I don't even want to be too strident about our current DSM categories, right? So oh, uh -huh. for all we know, healthy people experience something like temporary schizophrenia, maybe uh, every five years. I mean, like literally, <laughs> like that's within the realm of possibility. They wouldn't uh -huh. meet criteria for schizophrenia. But criteria has changed. We don't, you know, we're we're still using very dull equipment, basically, in uh -huh. sort of psychological diagnostics and stuff, which is not to say it's not helpful. It's extremely helpful, but it is all approximate. And I actually tell clients this to sort of normalize their diagnoses, right? Like, look, this is this is the best language we have for people who have roughly a similar experience that you're having. And the reason that we do that at all is so that we can try out different treatments on people who have roughly a similar experience uh -huh. and find uh -huh. something that is likelier to work. But it's but this stuff changes, right? Will PTSD always require a life ending or sexual assault activity? Maybe not. For, perhaps they will recognize that you can get PTSD from other things. These things are in flux. And I don't know that there's not some sort of neurological correlate for some of these more intense psychopathologies that people without them do sometimes experience, you know, just like I will sometimes get very acute depressive spells. If I've had like a big dopamine rush the day before or whatever, like 
but I don't have long-term chronic depression, you know, but like uh-huh. I, my brain will still experience that for a few hours. And then I go, Oh wow, that's interesting. And this is what that feels like. So who knows? I mean that I don't, I'm not making a claim there. I'm just saying there are so many unanswered questions mm-hmm. as time goes forward. Some of which will be answered somewhat better than they are now who I don't know. Well, I do. I do. I know that some questions will be answered better. And I know that many things we will never figure out. Right. Well, certainly not while I'm certainly not while we're alive. We won't figure them out. No, 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 no. You're a mammal. You're never going to figure out everything. The species isn't going to figure out. I don't believe that we will ever figure out anything either. I agree with you on that. And it's not it's actually sort of a denial of the human condition to assume that we will. I think it's I think it is like a non-religious religious type uh, <laughs> narrative to take part in. Oh, I'm a part of the long march of history, which will figure everything out. And uh-huh. OK, great. I, I appreciate your faith, sir. You know, I also have faith in, in a Christian story. We, yeah. we, we share uh-huh. that, you know. Uh huh. OK, well. Maybe that maybe that's it. I think people are intrigued. I hope they're intrigued. I I just want to close on the hope thing. I mean, I I do think that these stories provide hope. I put them in the category of hope. Most of my questions are from a psychological angle just because that's my field. Uh-huh. And sure. I'm not a biblical scholar and I'm not a philosopher. And so like I as as often is the case, I have my areas where I, that I would have focused on if it were my project, but I didn't write the book. It wasn't my project. It was your project. And I've really appreciated having a candid conversation with you. And I would really recommend people read it if they are intrigued by the stuff in there. And they should also read Varieties of Religious Experience if they haven't read that. That's uh, It's fantastic and, and um, uh-huh. culture setting. Dale, thank you. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed the conversation and the give and take and back and forth and all that. I feel like if I if we ever hang in person, I owe you a beer after all that for putting you through it. So, <laughs> thank you. 